Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Manufactured in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden makes the best acrylics, oil paints, and watercolors that you can buy. You can find them in your local art store, or you can find them online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The school welcomes artists from around the world to join us this summer in New York City or virtually from your studio to learn from dedicated artists and expand as a maker in the legendary Marathon program. Rigorous and immersive, Marathons unfold over 10 days from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time daily and present an extensive range of art-making strategies, comprehensive critiques, and inspirational discussions. Expansive, first-hand discoveries propel artists to relate to drawing, painting, and sculpture as direct methodologies for understanding one's experience in the world, the profound impact of which continues far beyond each marathon's conclusion. Generous partial scholarships are available. Visit nyss.org to apply today. Fulcrum Coffee Roasters are a Seattle-based, full-service, wholesale coffee roaster and retailer with over 25 years of experience defined by a focus on premium roast coffee and local and global community. Check out their coffee at fulcrumcoffee.com. Sound and Vision listeners can get 20% off your order of coffee by using the code ALFREDSTUDIO when you make an online order. Kate McQuillan is a Brooklyn-based painter. She's represented by Massey Klein Gallery in New York. Recent exhibitions include solo shows at Massey Klein Gallery and Deanna Evans Projects in New York, and group shows at Coherent Gallery and Left Field Gallery in California. Kate was a founding member of Super Duchess, an artist-run project space on the Lower East Side where she curated shows including Samantha Bittman, Reese Corin, Krista Franklin, and Robin Kang, amongst others. As a writer, she's published pieces on Alex Dodge, Elizabeth Atterbury, Chuck Webster, and more. In addition to working for a number of years as a production printer at a Chicago gig poster shop, she's worked as an assistant printer on fine art prints for Charlene Von Heil and Swoon. Writings about her work have been included in Art and Print, Hyperallergic, Printeresting, and the Chicago Reader. She's attended residencies in the United States and abroad, including Mass Mocha, Oxbow, and the Franz Massereal Centrum. She has a BFA from the Massachusetts College of Art and an MFA from York University. I spoke to Kate about her time in Boston at Mass Art, printing in Chicago, music posters and Alice Coltrane, printing as process, and much more. Here's our conversation. <laughs> so you're in Brooklyn too, right? Yep, I'm in Greenpoint. And um, it's actually quite quiet out where I am. It's, you know, near McGulrick Park. So it's a lot of families and... Um, yeah. Yeah. And I've got this, um, I've got this great setup here where I have a, a garage in my building. And oh, that's, wow. that's great setup. You know, I had looked yeah. at places on the North side of the park there, that one road. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that seems like a nice road to be on. Um, Monitor street. Sure. 
yeah. <laughs> it sounds like, right. Yeah, it's yeah. like yeah. It's I mean, one of my- it, it seems like people would have that. You know, you have your building, which would be nice. Yep. But so yeah. it sounds like you have the ideal situation. Yeah, I mean, especially during the pandemic, you know, it was like uh, just walk out the front door and then studios right there. Um, and yeah, the garage, like it also has a sink, which is really unusual for a garage. It's kind of like a workshop <laughs> and, garage, like one of those. Yeah. Things. Yeah. And for my process, I, I do need water. So, so that's, that's cool. And then yeah, I also have a backyard, you know, that has a water hookup. So, you know, I can sometimes wash my, my silk screens oh, out. Cause you're doing screens. Backyard. Yeah. You don't, yeah. You, I guess you don't have one of those giant screen sinks. Right. Right. Those Which are special. Actually, yeah, they're special and they take up a ton of space and they require like a pressure washer. And yeah. like I keep my setup as simple as possible. And I, I've just found ways to kind of work work around it. Right. But I've got. And yeah, amazingly, I just kind of had all the components here that I needed in this little space. Wait, that was just an accident? <laughs> or were you seeking well, that out for a while? Literally, this is the first apartment that I looked at in New York City when I moved here. Oh, wow. <laughs> from what, what year was that? <laughs> that was 2016. And like, I did not know Greenpoint. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I really, I didn't know anyone here. And I was like, I saw it on Stephanie's list. And I was like, that looks pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got here and I was like, you know, this apartment kind of has everything I need. So I, I missed that whole experience of like, you know the new york studio hunt and you know um trying Roughing to find it out special space it just kind of appeared yeah. <laughs> hey listen that's the best bet you don't have to deal with all that you know yeah. the new york real estate bs you know what i mean just get yourself yeah. into a good spot like that it's great yeah 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 i, yeah, I can't so- imagine having you know the garage studio thing is such a mm-hmm. i don't know it's such an allure to that for me the idea of you know you just walk outside like it's separated it's not part of the house necessarily and then you just go and work and i was doing some uh i, I vacationed a lot during covid mm-hmm. i went on zillow and i would just you know travel the world and i'd look at all these houses on zillow that <laughs> like massive garages and fantasize about you know like a giant studio garage because a lot of those guys who have those car garages that are big there's a lot of them in pennsylvania for some reason and they'll have like a three-car garage and then like a workshop and a sink and you're like that would be perfect you don't even have to do anything to it oh my god there i mean there's so many things about it that i think are amazing i mean i don't know the garage it's like it's part of your home but then it has a very separate vibe about it you know it's it is a workspace and yet you know, it has like all the comforts of just being in your own space. And we actually have a couple other garages on my block. And one of them is like a, um, it's like a motorcycle club and they repair old cars. And they're kind of funny. It's like, they're the guys on the block who kind of like are looking out for everyone. (laughs) And, you know, they'll open up their garage door and they'll have these um, you know, like yard sales, and then they'll park their cars that can kind of show them off. And, you know, it's, it's yeah. like, they kind of share that space with the block almost in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, in this, a garage in the city, it's like a really unique, it's a really unique thing. 
Yeah, it's funny. It's kind of like Brooklyn's version of the uh, the Lions Club parking lot car rallies that they have in the suburbs. You know, right. it's like there's some of them around because I live in East Williamsburg and you'll see them on these old streets where, you know, it's just like a motorcycle shop and they all hang out there and like lawn chairs, and listen to music mm-hmm. and hang out and work out mm-hmm. on the street. You know, it's kind of like they're holding on to that old school, you know, Brooklyn yeah. kind of like feel. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it totally feels that way. And I mean, my block definitely has a lot of people who who grew up on it. And, yeah. you know, I've gotten to be friendly with some of them. My next door neighbor, you know, she's lived in that building her whole life. And I ask her questions all the time, like what was Greenpoint like back then? And, you know, her first rent was like $50 a month or something. <laughs> Those stories are so crazy, right? I had an old neighbor on Grand oh. Street and over by Bedford Avenue when I like my second place I had in Brooklyn and my neighbor was from Puerto Rico and he sold his place and he's like, yeah, yeah. I bought this for like $24,000, like yeah. a long time yeah, yeah. ago. He's like, I yeah, just yeah, sold yeah. it for like just under a million. <laughs> it's like, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good turnaround. But yeah, those stories of, you know, of people's when they got in early, you're just so, you get yeah. jealous of that. But oh, Greenpoint's yeah, totally. such a nice area. It's, I mean, you know, it still has that, that old charm to it, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's changing totally. a little, but yeah. Well, the garage is like, you know, here, here's a segue. My, the first band I was in, we played our first show in a garage and we would practice in a garage. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, creativity in a garage is like, mm-hmm. they're linked. You know what I mean? There's something really romantic about kind of like being creative in any situation you can. And a garage feels like, you know, yeah. a DIY get it done kind of thing. Nothing special. You just go in there. It's like three walls and a door that opens and you can make whatever you need to in there, whether it's like bad indie rock songs or, <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. or paintings or whatever you're doing, you know? So, um, but yeah, did you, totally. you grew up in Boston, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. 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 I grew up in Boston. Did, did you have a garage? <laughs> we did have a garage. We did have a garage. I grew up in like a really old house and, uh, our garage had, um, we would get coal delivered to our house. We had like a coal burning stove. So our oh, garage nice. was coal. <laughs> so it coal. was not really a garage that you could use. <laughs> had, a, had a black dust everywhere? Doesn't, doesn't yeah, coal yeah, get really dusty? Yeah. yeah, like a truck would show up and it would kind of like load it in. So yeah, so that space was like a real, you know, it was like a house that was like outside that uh, we didn't really go into all that much. But um, yeah, so I grew up in Boston and um, I went to MassArt uh, right. for undergrad. That makes sense. That's a great and, school. Wait, yeah. so Boston though, uh, so I'm really bad at Boston geography. I just haven't spent a lot of time outside city proper, you know, yeah. but were you close to downtown or were you pretty far away? No, no, no. I was in the suburbs. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, but you small went into the city a lot. Like you were yeah. close enough to do that. Yeah. Yeah. When I got to be like 16, you know, I started making yeah. trips and go to like the Middle East and, you know, the clubs that would allow, you know, people who were um, younger. Um, Middle East upstairs, right? Wasn't that the all age or is that how yep. they did it? Or did it? It maybe um, it changed. I can't remember. I do had, have a memory. They probably had down. all ages shows and both at, at some point. Right? Yeah. yeah, I think so. Because I remember distinctly going there in high school and like that was back when like newbury comics was really big right um as like a place to buy music 
Yeah. And there weren't that many locations. So I remember like driving into Newbury Street to go to that store, you know, yeah. to like get magazines and music and stuff like that. Right. So, well, you grew up in the suburbs um, and did you have siblings? Yes, I have two siblings, but they're a lot older than me. So, um, you know, when I kind of came along, my parents were, they were definitely like <laughs> chilled out. <laughs> I knew this was like, going somewhere by that look on your face. <laughs> well, when I happened. <laughs> totally. Yeah, they were like, I mean, they were they were very chill to begin with as as parents and they uh you know my siblings i think were a bit more of a challenge and you know i was just kind of like the youngest and i was you know a creative and and they kind of they gave me a lot of freedom so do you think because i have theories about this uh -huh. i i always feel like the second or third child not the first the first child's always going to be like you know because the parents are always like free no not always but Parents are generally going to be more worried about the first one, you know. So mm -hmm. as you go down the line, you know, I had a friend who had so many brothers and sisters that I don't even think the dad knew about the young ones. I think he thought the youngest were just friends of the <laughs> the older <laughs> kids who were just hanging around. You know what I mean? So, but I imagine my theory is is that you know, if you have parents that are either older or have had kids, you're just yeah. going to be a more chill person in life. You're not going to yeah. get so worked up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my siblings and I follow all of those um, birth order, you know, stereotypes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like my brother's like, you know, like a finance guy and, you know, he does everything like kind of by the books. And, you know, my sister is like a bit more of like a free spirit. And then there's like, you know, me as the, the artist at the, you know, at the end. Like, I think that is a really common thing that the, yeah. the youngest, the creative. Um, but you know, my parents are pretty creative too. My dad actually has like a, an MFA in painting. And so oh, nice. we had a lot of, a lot of art around. Wow. I don't know that so, I talked to too many people whose parents have an MFA in painting or in an art. Yeah. Some that a lot that dabble, you know what I mean? Or have a hobby or some that kind of do it, but it sounds like he went the whole nine. He went the whole nine, but like back then you know, you could get an MFA and then you could get jobs that were like more traditional. So well, he got weird. an MFA. Yeah. <laughs> Employable <Yeah>. MFA? <laughs> <laughs> They're very applicable in the real world. Um, <laughs> but no, he, he worked as a graphic designer. Okay. But back then, there, that wasn't even really a degree yet. So if you wanted to be a graphic designer, you know, you gig. could a painting degree and yeah. then, you know, like translate that into a workplace environment. Right. So, you know, he he went to school for painting. That was his his love. But then, you know, had a family and and got a job. Um, but then this is this is kind of a funny I mean, jumping down the line 30 years, he retired when I was still in college, when I was at MassArt. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because they had me so late in life and, you know, it just kind of landed that way. And in Massachusetts, as a, after a certain age, you can take classes for free at uh -oh. of the public institutions. This sounds like a dangerous so, <laughs> intersection. <laughs> so I was like a senior in my senior year in college and my dad started taking classes at MassArt. 
Oh boy. (laughs) I guess, I guess it's better that you were a senior, right? Oh no. (laughs) That's, it's better that you're a senior. If you were a freshman, you probably would have been mortified, right? Yeah. Yeah. By the time I was a senior, I was like, this is cool. You know, my dad is, he's, he's great. And so I would like run into him. He'd be like wearing his car hearts. He need to have his, you know, little box of tools and he'd be on his way to his drawing class. Yeah. But he's, (laughs) but your dad was legit. Like he had an MFA. He wasn't just, you know, like a, a weekend warrior or painter or something just you know oh, right. i think i'll give this thing my kids doing a try and see anyone can do this that sort of thing would be really irritating <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly like you know he'd seen he'd seen all sorts of stuff uh and been been through it so so um, mass art was good it was um what oh, years are amazing. we talking that you were here um it was like 20 years ago i was there in the late 90s yeah um you know, 99 to 2002. So, um, and you know, actually I'm, I teach there now. I teach screen printing there now. And I know that you teach at the place where you went to undergrad too, I right? Do. Yeah. Yep. It, there's something kind of special about it. Like I, there is, yeah. I find it really interesting to now be in the position that, you know, I once was looking to for yeah. guidance. Right. Right. And I, I'm really nice about that. But, um, but back then, Mass Art was like it was it was still just Massachusetts College of Art. It's now Massachusetts College of Art and Design. How and dare they? I know. <laughs> Sully that name like that. <laughs> it was perfect. Um, but yeah, they did kind of like the school did go through kind of a big shift where you know they needed to kind of show as a public institution, you know, that they were generating you know jobs and things right. like that so like i do feel like the school like kind of professionalized in a way it, during the time that you know kind of after i left and when i compare it now to what it was back then like it was kind of like the wild west back then like you know students were just like making work all over the place there was like the print shop was right next to the studio for interrelated media which was like the kind of the catch-all department for like new new media and right. you know you'd walk out in the hallways and it's a really old building so there's lots of like nooks and crannies and i just remember you know you'd come across some crazy installation of like you know music equipment plus you know some sort of like visual element on the wall and there'd just be some kid like hanging out making something <laughs> and i see less <laughs> of that these days you know <laughs> yeah it's a little more straight laced right nowadays yeah yeah I, I don't know what that's that about. I, well, I guess yeah. everything is so monitored now or something. Everything's got to be so oh. structured. But yeah, I agree. Like our undergrad it was like, I mean, I don't even want to tell the stories. There was some wild stuff going on. You know what I mean? Like it was crazy. Yeah. Like you, yeah. there would, I would say 80% of the, the people in the BFA program that I was in would have been kicked yeah. out if they did what they did today when I was in <laughs> school. Like they'd be gone. <laughs> <laughs> cancel culture in art school yeah, yeah, yeah. would have been you real mean like for What's the that? content of work? oh uh, no no sorry. for their activities their leisurely <laughs> activities in the in the art building <laughs> oh, <yeah>. gotcha gotcha <laughs> my friend did an insula- in an insulation art class he did this is just really funny he did this installation of a grocery cart filled with beer that had a neon sign on it that said hug me that flashed and after the crit he parked it in the studios and people just started drinking it was like you could never do that today no way way. oh my god 
But yeah, so it's different times, but a different energy that I think we get nostalgic for, especially me being back there. You know, I'm like, wait a minute, you guys aren't sleeping here and like working 24 seven and like, what? Not doing that. Yeah, feel old, you know, you're like, oh, I'm one of the people now that talks about how it used to be. Yeah, well, it happens to all of us. (laughs) (laughs) It really does. Just one day you're just like, you know, no matter how progressive, (laughs) no matter how hard you try, even yeah. if you don't say it to them, you're thinking to yourself, well, when I yep. was doing it, yeah, <laughs> brutal. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah, talking so, with a student recently, and she was like, what did you do after, after undergrad? And I was like, I was like, well, I was like, in the early aughts, I was like, I was a webmaster. <laughs> when those words <laughs> came out of my mouth, I was like, this sounds an- you know, antiquated. <laughs> Right, and they were like, "What's that?" <laughs> you know, and I was like, "Well, person who made websites <laughs> with HTML," and they were like, "Oh my god!" You know. <laughs> yeah. Did you learn HTML too? You did that. Actually, I did. Yeah, that was something I learned at MassArt. Um, kind of, you know, in some elective classes because back then yeah. it was pretty simple. Like you really, you could do a lot. Like that was the main tool, and Definitely. so. Um, so yeah, I, I did do that, and I had that was like my side job for many, many years, and my full time job. Um, Web design stuff. Yeah. And yeah. then like Dreamweaver came, and you're like, wait a minute, I spent all this time. It's like when I learned Latin in grade school <laughs> for two years, and then they were like, at the end, they're like, it's a dead language, you're not going to be able to use it. And you're like, what the hell? I just spent two years learning this. This is a sham. But I think I'm a little older than you, maybe, but and I. I had to teach myself HTML because I was out of school. And I don't even know if okay. they were teaching it then. But yeah, right, it was basic. Right. It was something you could just image circ. You just put the picture in there and all that stuff. Yep. And then all of a sudden, yeah. they just you spend all this time learning that. And they just drop this like right. you know, program that where you can drag and drop it. Yeah. Pretty just amazing. It yeah, totally. Yeah. And I don't know. It's interesting. I'm not sure. You know, WordPress now is so powerful. It probably feels the same way for, you know, the people who, whatever, you know, developed CSS. Like, oh, yeah, that's true. Like, that seems to just continue on with technology. It just kind of doubles down. Um, yeah, it, it's an interesting schism between work that is made sort of analog and then digital mm-hmm. work, new media work, because like the painting stuff doesn't really change. Mm-hmm. The sculpture stuff doesn't change much unless it has new media integrated into it, you know, but then new media is constantly changing. It's right. really interesting that that's sort of the parallel tract of that, though, where one is basically like standing still and just mm-hmm. it's just changing, all tweaking itself over and over again. Like this is new sculpture, kind of like that one, but just a little different. And then new media is just like like something that can be changing drastically constantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's like you know, the beauty of why painting and sculpture are, you know, it's like, it's a set of constraints that everyone is just bumping up against constantly. And, you know, those rules can kind of like set it free at times. And, um, you know, in in a lot of ways, the limits of it are, are what make it interesting, you know? Definitely. I think we always come back to that deep down in a way. Like, you know, Minecraft is big. There's like games out there that are crazy, but people will just stay. You know what I mean? Like if you play Pac-Man, you're like, okay, this yeah. this is amazing. 
yeah. never like people will love to go back to that sort of like the mm -hmm. format, you know, and then there's the people on the side who are just like exploding it. So it's kind of a nice dynamic. But when you were in school, were you, I mean, obviously you were doing some new media stuff, not related to your work maybe, but, or how was the work different? And then you're working with printmaking. So that's yeah. Yeah. a whole other process. Well, yeah, I found a whole, a whole tie there between those two worlds, actually, printmaking and the internet, you know, yeah. like, like the notion of reproducible media, you know, the internet is our uh version of printed matter like what that was you know 500 years ago like when right. the printing press invented that was the way to get information out there and you know there's other conceptual ties i think between those things like a print you know you often refer to the the plate as like the matrix yeah. <laughs> like is the source uh for the information that gets repeated and, you know, a set of code is essentially a matrix, too. So I was really into that stuff in undergrad. I found that whole conversation to be, like, really, really interesting and relevant. And I actually did make a lot of work back then that was, like, kind of um, tied to those ideas. Yeah. Did that kind of work its way out into a more yeah. like, uh, unconscious influence in the work? Yeah. I mean... Um, there were periods when the work was like, um, really specific. And then when I left undergrad, I kind of, you know, started searching for something different. And I, then I spent a whole period of time. And at that point I, I'd moved to Chicago. And I think at that point, you know, I tried to make the work a bit more, um, personal. So there yeah. were kind of shifts between if I was talking about kind of the bigger ideas of, you know, that whole world of communication and technology or like the personal side of it. Um, and so, finding yeah, that, that was kind of like, early. what's that? Finding that balance yeah, within the work, sometimes yeah. kind of unconsciously, right? Like it's not like I need to do this, but you're just right. working through it. It took me right. to, to start using the computer for my work to look less computery. Oh. <laughs> Uh-huh. Which is weird, you know, because there was a fascination with technology before I was using it in the work of just the uh -huh. look of it. And then when I started using a computer, I dropped that structural look of it or or the, the complexity of like the idea of of technology and just integrated oh, technology into the process, but not on purpose. Like I'm going to start making computer drawings. I I, you know. You do it sometimes just out of like a convenience of a tool. You know what I mean? It's not like you pick up certain squeegees and and screen printing and say, I'm going to conceptually do this. So the, you know, you just do it because it works. It's part of a tool of a process. But then you find certain things within that process that you're like, oh, that's cool. That does something totally different, like mixing right. inks or something or layering. And, you know. Yeah. Well, your work, I mean, I'm thinking about the animations which I actually have gotten to see like in person at a performance once. Um, I went to some show on the Lower East Side and your animations were oh, really? projected. Yeah, um, I'm gonna forget the name of the musician. Oh, uh, Logan Takahashi. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that was at uh, yeah. that place. <laughs> yeah, doesn't that feel like a million years oh, ago? Like it, being inside a club like that? <laughs> I, 
I keep blaming COVID for it, but I think my memory is just going. So I'm just going to roll with like it's the pandemic that made me forget a lot. But but yeah, but Lucine played after him, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is yeah, really good. The, yeah, yeah. That was, that, that was an amazing show. But anyways, um, but I remember being struck by like your works, like simplicity. Like I look, I look at it and I, of course, think of it like a print almost like I try to break it down in my head of like what the layers are or more just like what the shapes are and how they fit together. Yeah. And, you know, there's like a real simplicity there that I think there's a sweet spot with technology where you can kind of mix like the tools as you're saying. And then like, if something's kind of clean and, and crisp enough, like there is kind of a magic spot where it all really works. Yeah. And it's, it's tied to printmaking because, you know, most of my work, like when I went to grad school it was for painting and printmaking and I, I TA'd okay. and screen printing and I did a lot of print stuff and, you know, building yeah. an image and printmaking, like with like wood, cu wood cuts and stuff like that. There's a certain kind of layering that you can mimic in the computer, which is very similar. So. That whole layering process is, is just there for you to see. And what's amazing about the computer is that you can kind of get a glimpse into the future of what the image will look like. Right. Where in printmaking, you know, a lot of times once your layers are down, you know, there's not much you can do about it. So, right. which is exciting too, but just it's a different roll of the dice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but sure. so, were you, when you went to Chicago, was screen printing or printmaking more pronounced at that point, or was it something you were doing full tilt already? Or, um, well, yeah, I was really into screen printing from the moment I. I saw it in undergrad. And when I moved to Chicago, one of the first things I did was I built my own exposure unit nice. and my own area to, to print. And, you know, that's one of the many amazing things about screen printing is just you can do it in a lot of different settings and you don't need too much equipment. Um, but I did, you know, I did build like a basic um, exposure unit and can't really remember how I was washing it out. I think I had a backyard. Uh, so it was maybe kind of like a seasonal thing, but I just really wanted to like keep going with it. Um, and so, you know, my, my whole understanding of screen printing at that point was like a real fine art context. Like I, you know, I had gone through a BFA program where it was like, you know, it was very, um, my program was really loose and really, like they they thought of it more like just works on paper. It wasn't the kind of program where you are learning how to edition and right. you know learning tons of technical stuff. It was much more like conceptually based, but it was very like fine art driven. And then when I got to Chicago, I came to learn about the world of like concert posters and the more you know DIY like real world applications of screen printing. Yeah, and that was like really exciting and and it took me a little while to like kind of grasp that um that whole side of of that medium did you come to that through just seeing it or was it people doing it it was people doing it um chicago one of the really like amazing things about it is you know kind of given its size it's still pretty easy for artists to um collectively you know, congregate, I, I guess kind of what a, an easier way to put this is that there was a, um, there was like a meetup group called the Chicago Printers Guild Yeah. that was 
or like all the gig poster people to kind of get together and like show each other their shops and, you know, hang out. And, you know, it was also a way to kind of like, um, you know, like shared jobs. Like if someone had, you know, they couldn't, couldn't pull off some, uh, some job that they got, they could hand it off to a friend of theirs. And, you know, there was like a, a really basic like bulletin board kind of, you know, communication list where people would kind of share stuff and people would, you know, ask each other, you know, tech questions. But anyways, the, the group did, you know, it was open to kind of any printmaker. So I started yeah. showing up just because I was curious to like see what all these people were doing and, and kind of get a glimpse into their shops. That's cool. So you were exposed to that side of things. Yeah. Yeah. And so I met, I met some, some people there who I, who I just really was like fascinated by the way that they were doing things. One of them was Sonnen Zimmer, which is a collaborative art duo, uh, Nick Butcher, Nadine Nakanishi. They, they have this practice that's like everything from painting to performance to um, publications and um, posters. And, you know, their whole practice is kind of rooted in graphics. And to see someone who is, you know, kind of doing, kind of working both sides of it to me was, was really interesting. And then, you know, the ties to the music industry were just really fun to see. Yeah. Uh, was, like um, the way was Fireproof in Chicago? Fireproof. I don't, I don't recognize that one, but they could have been. Yeah, I can't I can't remember either. For some reason I was thinking that maybe they but I mean there were a lot of artists who were God, I, I wish I could remember their names, but they were doing a lot of those screen print posters for, you know, gigs around town that were I mean, because the music scene was so epic. I mean, what year did you get there? I got there in two thousand two. Yeah. I mean um, that's yeah. like the wave is cresting at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Like Wilco, you know, was like huge and and the lounge acts and i think that club had just closed but they had you know they had been hiring people to make posters and they had a lot of money behind them from i guess record labels i don't really know the ins and outs of it that much but yeah there was this huge swell where it was kind of like the music industry had a lot of money you know these small clubs were doing well and there was this one guy in chicago um steve walters <clears throat> he ran this um, this press called Screwball Press, mm-hmm. and he, um, he, I think it was like his grandfather was a printer. Like he, you know, I think he was kind of self-taught based on like some tools that he had around. And he was like, he started offering to make posters for a lot of these venues, and like his work is just amazing. When I look at his gig posters, like. I just love them. They're, they're, the colors are like incredible and they have this like real Americana to them where they're kind of, I don't know, I feel like they reference lots of early gig posters, but then they're also like kind of gritty and kind of punk rock. And he just like had this amazing style, but then he's also such a nice guy that he decided to start like a school where he could teach people how to make posters. So then he taught like a whole next generation of people how to do this thing. And he had this crazy space where you'd go in and it was like floor to ceiling gig posters, like everyone's work. We pasted up on the walls. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it was really just cool. like pretty 
and dirty. And I remember walking in there and just being like, this place is amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. You can imagine the smell of a place like that. Yep. I feel like yeah, Chicago yeah. is, you know, and it's such a blue collar. It's got that sort of down to earth, blue collar, creative yep. aesthetic, you know, and, and drive to it, which, and there's nothing really like that, you know? That it, it's so true. It has such a, um, such a specific feeling about it. You know, it, everyone there works really hard and, you know, there's a, there's a real sense that they can do what they're doing in that city. And, you know, it's, it's going to resonate locally and will probably get out further, but, you know, first and foremost, it's like, it's about that place. Right. Um, I think, and, I think they have uh, to do that because they don't tend it. I feel like Chicago doesn't get the international love really. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, well, they're, they're doing cool stuff or it's, it's Chicago. Yeah. You know what I mean? I feel like other people don't pay attention to it quite so much. Like people right, are still yeah. bringing up Harry who, which is amazing. I mean, Harry who's amazing, but I mean, there's a lot of stuff in Chicago that's been happening since then. You know exactly, what I mean? But yeah. I, I feel like it's just, you know, it kind of, mm -hmm. but it, it's got a provincialism that just keeps itself going. But it's much right. more in the mix as far as attention. And like, I'm from Pittsburgh, and I feel like Pittsburgh has a lot going on there, but it really doesn't get out. Like, it's kind of provincial yeah. and just stays there, you know? Yeah. For yeah. the most part. But amazing things. So, and Chicago's got, it's got everything you need there. It's got the food, it's got the art, it's got the music, the blues. Yeah, the museums. Yeah, the music. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's a great place to live and um, I still get back there quite a bit, you know, just cause I don't want to, don't want to lose touch. Right. Uh, yeah. Did you ever yeah, go to the lounge acts? No, it closed before I got there. Okay. I yeah. Cause think, what, I think maybe, didn't the cocktails play the last show at the lounge. I think there's a live CD of that. Yeah. Yeah. They did. I, I think there might be a gig poster for that too. I'm sure it was good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, so just being around all these people who were, who were making prints for a living, but in a totally yeah. different way was really interesting to me. And I never wanted to, I never wanted to design posters. I just really love them. But I, I did, um, I was interested enough in it that I decided that, you know, I wanted to work at one as like a, as a lead screen printer, you know, the person like running the jobs. Yeah. So I did that for a while and I was actually in the space that Screwball used to be in. So the one that was all wallpapered. Um, so that was really fun, but yeah, my job was like, I would run the press and then I would also mix all the colors. Nice. Which was, it, it was really how I learned about color. Um, yeah. On the job know, training. Never, yeah. Now was this yeah, like, while you were in school or was this after? This was after, yeah, it was, it was after graduate school, actually. I went to graduate school kind of in the middle. I skipped over that, but I was in Toronto for graduate school for a couple of years and then came back to Chicago and then got the job working in the print shop. Yeah. So you probably learned just as much in printmaking in that job than you did in all your time at school. 100 yeah. <laughs> percent. I mean, and not to, not to like undermine the things that I learned in school, it just for me really illustrates how long it takes to really learn some of these techniques, you know, yeah. like anything like painting is the same. I'm not suggesting that like printmaking is all that different, but you know, any, any craft, um, 
any art, you know, it's like you have to spend so many hours in there until you can really feel super comfortable at it. And, you know, now it's like, I do feel like I can walk into any screen printing shop and know, you know, exactly what to do regardless of how it's set up. And prior to working at that shop, you know, I didn't. And you were bringing up like the blue collar aspect of it. And I totally felt that when I had that job, it was like I was operating a machine, you know, all day yeah. for eight hours. And, um, you know, I would show up with like my brown bag lunch and I'd be like, I'm going to run this machinery for <laughs> the whole day and go home totally exhausted because I've been on my feet for, you know, 10 hours. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it's so fitting. And I feel like even the music there, there's such like a there's a lot of those collectives of people who work with other people and and people go to the studio and they write and make things even when electronic stuff was like starting to bubble in around that time it was still kind of like an analog approach to being um to using sort of you know electronic instruments or you know the computer so it was kind of fused together it's it's almost like it couldn't escape that blue collar aspect yeah know? Well, and yeah, and I mean, I think the reason why there's so many print shops there is just because there is all that industrial space left over. Yeah. And it's 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 a possibility for people there to cobble together like a a functioning um shop in a way that's just a lot harder in cities like New York where space is at a premium and yeah. you know, not as much of the equipment floating around and so yeah, people scrap together these like really amazing little studios with, you know, just the kind of the stuff that's around and and they're able to make businesses out of it. So yeah, I wonder, really I mean, is it changing at all though, or is it still pretty much holding true? I don't know. I mean, I, sh I have, I should check in with some of the people there. I get the sense that it's just continuing to grow, but of course, you know, the music industry got hit so hard during COVID. So Brutal. I, I don't, yeah, I can't imagine that. You know, no one needed gig posters for <laughs> a year and a half. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, and all those venues, although maybe as opposed to somewhere like New York where real estate is so, you know, insane, yeah. maybe people were able to hold it out or close up shop for a little while and, right. and the rent right, right. wasn't devastating. I hope. Probably. I mean, Probably, yeah. yeah. I mean, is the empty bottle still the empty bottle right now? I would imagine. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Maybe people own some of those buildings too. You know what I mean? Probably. Probably. Like is the Rainbow Room, are they paying rent or do they own that place? <laughs> <laughs> they're they're I reopened. Even, I don't even know if these places still exist. This is just from my time in Chicago. It's no, a long time ago. They're still there. Yeah, yeah. No, they're um all the places you've named so far, I, I think are still there. Um but yeah, but like the building I was in in Chicago, it was like you know, there was Son and Zimmer was there, but then there were also musicians in the building. Um, there was like a like a Grammy winning like um, contemporary classical um, quartet or sextet or something down the hall. And then there was like a chirp radio, like an independent radio station was in the same building. And, nice. you know, these spaces are so big and so versatile that you could have like, you know, a whole bunch of different things going on what know, was the what was the industry was it varied just all blue collar different kinds of industries that were in these factories uh that's a good question you mean like kind of like um how they zone it or whatever 
Or, oh no, kind of like where all these old factory buildings, like what the industry was oh, back in the day. I guess it was just all production well, stuff. Well, the building that I that I worked in actually was a. Um, it had something to do with printing. So yeah, you know, oh, it, it had it. It was caked in. <laughs> yeah, I think it. I think they made like. Um, I think like calendars or something, you know, some very specific like printed matter, but the, sh yeah. the building had, like old equipment, like we used an old cutter that was down in the basement and we would pay the landlord to like, you know, per cut, like if we had a stack of posters, we'd be like, okay, you know, we're going to go down and use the industrial cutter where it can cut through 300 at once. Cool. <laughs> and that was always the most nerve wracking part of those jobs. You know, you'd spend a whole week making an addition of 300 posters and you know six colors it's like eighteen thousand runs through the press and then you got to go down and cut a, all your guidelines off of it you know all your it registration once, right yeah once and it's like you'd have to put you'd have to do the math you'd be like okay the sheet's 24 inches we need to cut two inches off so you'd be entering like the numbers for cutting and i was always like if i if I forget, like if I don't do this simple math problem right, I could cut the whole poster in half. <laughs> oh, I hated that aspect of printmaking. <laughs> I know. It was I the know. worst. Like I hated it when it was on the line. You know what I mean? It's, it's totally. like one thing if you measure and cut things, you know, on no. your own one by one, but that kind of stress. You can, ruin, you can ruin the whole thing. And I remember we had this hilarious project where, oh my God, it was so funny. We had to print a poster for Black Sabbath. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. I was like, I can't believe my job, like in the year 2016. So we're like making this poster. It was so funny. It was like the image it was on black. It was like Satan, like a winged Satan, like rising out of like a coffin. And there's like stained glass windows. Seems like in a church or something. I don't know. It was so funny. But we did the whole run. We printed the whole run and we realized that we had left like digitally. We had put like a registration mark in the wrong place. And it was within the margin. Oh boy. And so we had like 300 posters that had like a big crosshair mark on it. And right. so what we had to do is we had to run the whole thing again and print a black crosshair on top of the white crosshair to try to hide it on the black paper. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I was like, oh Try to print erase it? Yeah, we print erased it. Yeah, that's a good way that's to put good. it. I thought you would just draw in a pentagram over each one and then it'd be done. <laughs> oh, that would be better. I'm sure we could have morphed it into something really good. Yeah, and then we had this other hilarious job where, um, you know, we actually, we had a lot of clients who were in like the jam band world. Those oh, were yeah. kind of like They're popular. my least favorite clients, but a right. lot of those people were really in merch, you know, the whole like... Yeah shakedown street thing is like yeah, yeah. still alive and well in that community and we actually did have a poster for dead and company um uh, yeah you know the, the grateful dead right yeah yeah actually i was just listening to your jake longstreth interview that was that was that i remember <laughs> that's recent <laughs> enough that yeah he's in but the no, cover band grateful dead cover band yeah but anyway so with that job we um it was so big. It was such a big run that we, we had to hire or we had to bring in a bunch of like people who are, you know, not, not full-time workers. And for some reason we left them in charge of the very beginning of the run. Deadheads? I think we had you just let deadheads run the show? I think they were deadheads too. I think we were like, <laughs> guess what? You can work on this awesome project. 
And this never happened any other time in my whole time at that job, but there was a tiny hole in the screen. And every single time the squeegee would come down, which is like automated, you know, it's like a big mechanical thing. It wasn't like you're pulling it by hand. Every time the squeegee came down, it was slowly tearing open that hole, which we did not know was there. And (laughs) so the first layer, of course, because it was a Grateful Dead image was like a skull. And so this tiny hole in the screen just continued to get bigger and bigger. And with each print, the, the skull was kind of splitting open. As the Sounds cool. <laughs> and the interns or whatever, the deadhead interns like didn't notice. And then we got like 300 prints in and I came over to check in the press and I was like, oh my God, I was like, the image is totally like morphed. You know, so we had to like shut down the whole production and we're all standing there like looking at the at the prints and you know someone was like will the deadheads even notice <laughs> <laughs> they'll love and it then someone, else, someone else was like they're probably going to think it's cooler and i was like okay <laughs> that so, or you could just send they, it to black sabbath they, they'd take yeah. 150 to 300 with a split skull <laughs> yeah but so what we ended up doing was we called the company and we we're like hey we we're like you know we had this weird thing happen and we were like, we, you know, we couldn't waste the paper. And it was also just so much material. We were kind of like, look, like, could they be like the special edition and we right. just, you know, flip the paper over and we'll, we'll produce the whole thing correctly on one side, but a bunch of them on the back, will have this like split skull. <laughs> and they were like totally into it. <laughs> yeah. I figured they'd be cool with pretty much anything. <laughs> yeah, man, so, go for it. Yeah. Limited edition. <laughs> the words limited edition with like any merch stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that's the cool valuable. thing about when you find those prints that have that you know the mistake or whatever those become sometimes the most sought after ones you know oh absolutely absolutely yeah for sure the others are just humdrum you want the one that's got the little weird you know the little tweak in it that just makes it oh, kind of special yeah. and if any printer you say that to that will drive them nuts you know because oh, yeah. printer, their entire goal is to make everything identical but yet people just inherently want the ones that are special. One word, shinkale. <laughs> <laughs> just, I just want to, like every printmaker, like as a person who works in a print shop's nightmare, is like, oh, yeah, I just want to collage stuff on top, you know, and start like breaking the mold. It's like, why okay. do you have to? Because <laughs> you want it to be kind of succinct and like a process. And, yeah. yeah, that's like two prints in one. You know, it's like yeah. doubly, doubly hard. Yeah, it's almost lithograph level, which was like the true nightmare. Did you ever do lithography? Oh, yeah, I was super into lithography. I mean, kind of why I got into printmaking was I just really liked, I liked the tools and the, you know, the mechanics of it. And like, you'd have to move those stones around with a little hydraulic lift. And I remember that as like an 18 year old and I was like I want to do that and it was almost more just like the challenge of being able to run the machinery right that I was drawn it's like to running and, a marathon <laughs> yeah yeah um and I you know I I think I was just really drawn to to that part of lithography I never clicked with the image making part of it right. um but I liked I liked the making of it but screen printing I just always um it was like I could just kind of feel that that was like my medium, yeah. And then I just didn't really feel the need to do 
too many other things because you know once you've kind of found your thing and you feel that strongly about it it's you know it's just like time to push on with that right now was it so as you're finishing in chicago or like before you moved to new york is is your work like what's going on with the work how is screen printing integrated or like you know yeah, yeah. That so happening? that's a good question it the work that I was making before I left was entirely different from the work that I'm making now. Um, actually, a lot of my work back then was black and white, and some of it actually wasn't even screen printing. I, I was doing a lot of stuff that was a bit more painterly, and I was showing with a gallery in Toronto. Um, and yeah, it was a lot of works on paper. Um, and some sculptural work too i was doing some installation work when i was yeah. there so the switch to incorporating like all of the stuff that i learned in the gig poster shop didn't come until you know i moved to new york in 2016 and at that point i was like i was kind of starting over in a lot of ways and i decided to then really start using those skills that i learned at the shop in yeah. in the new work um but yeah but my my move to new york was like it was it was kind of epic um things in chicago had sort of run their course you know like i was in one of those periods in life where like just a lot of change is happening and it was a lot to deal with like i was i was slightly like struggling trying to figure out what my next moves were going to be yeah. And I was um I was at the gig poster shop one day and I I like took a break for lunch and I got an email from someone who I'd never met <clears throat> and he was like I found your work online and I'm interested in in buying some um it looks like the gallery you were working with has has just closed and that was the case this gallery in Toronto had just closed it shipped back all my work um, it was all sitting in my studio. I had like no room to work because I had like 16 big framed pieces in my studio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it was one of the things that was adding to my general, like sort of, you know, bummed out state. I was like, I couldn't even get into the studio. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I was like, I've got all this work. You could, you know, I, you could buy it through me, even though the gallery is not there. And he was like, great, send me a, send me a list. And so it turns out he's like a buyer for like a really high-end retail store. Mm -hmm. So I, I put together this PDF, I send it off to him. A couple more weeks pass, and I'm still kind of in this state where I'm trying to figure out like, you know, what my next move is. And then he writes me back and he was like, I'll take it. <laughs> and it was like all of it. All like of it? He just I'll take the whole it. PDF? <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> well, that's like kind of a great circumstance to come across crazy it was like just the timing in my life was was really it was the right moment for something like that and i Although, decided to just quickly there's kind of not a bad time for that to happen <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if that's ever inconvenient where uh you know what i'll just take everything in your studio <laughs> i guess right before you're gonna have a show maybe yeah, right, right, no yeah. but that's great i mean it was kind of just like you know, I was at a point in my life where I was really feeling like I had to make some big change and I didn't know how to do it otherwise. Yeah. And so it just kind of answered that question for me. That's great. And I was like, 
you know, now's the time to, to move to New York. But, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't particularly young. Like I kind of made the jump to New York, like in my mid thirties where a lot of people do that, you know, in their twenties. Yeah. Yeah. But, but fortunately it sounds like you landed in a mid thirties ish environment where you weren't like couch surfing for two years, you know, which is a kind of a mid twenties thing to do. Yeah, I did have a so lot of stability. Good. Yeah. Like, despite the fact that my life kind of went through like a big upset, it was sort of like I did, you know, I, I had a job that was work from home that could also kind of buffer that. And, you know, I just kind of um, decided to to give it a go. And I really didn't know anyone in New York. So, you know, when I landed here, I had like two or three, two or three friends. Um, yeah. And it was just kind of like, you know, time to time to learn about a new a new place. But why did you come to New York? Were you well, entertaining like LA or Europe or anywhere else? No, no. Um, I think it. I think I've always felt that New York was the kind of place where you can start over and have more opportunities than kind of anywhere else. I mean, I'm sure internationally, you know, there's there's other options. LA definitely could have been, um, but my family's out here. So it seemed like kind of the logical, the logical choice. You're an East coaster. Yeah. I feel that way. Like when I go to LA, it's, it's nice, but I I don't think I could ever live there. Right. 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 I'm like wired differently to, to jive with LA. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel the same way. I mean, I don't know what it is, maybe the seasons or whatever, but, um, but yeah, and then, you know, I do think it's just so true. There's so many people who come to New York to, to start over. It's part of the nature of this city. Yeah. Rebirth. In many ways. And that goes for, you know, people coming from across the world to, you know, people coming from another, you know, bordering state. Like, it's the kind of place where you can come and kind of be anything. Yeah. So, yeah. And so when I got here, I did feel really distinctly that, like, I couldn't make the work that I used to make. And because everything had changed in my life, you know, my work had to as well. So at that point, I started really kind of reaching into the, the gig poster, you know, toolbox. And instead of like producing nice prints, I started working on panel and then really kind of like embracing a lot of the mistakes that happen in screen printing yeah. and um, giving it more of a like an opportunity to be like an, an intuitive and painterly process. But then just still using that that screen as the vehicle to like flatten and unify the surface. Right. Which seems like it brought it back to the mass art days in a way of like using it as making a picture instead of making commodities or like multiples. It's like just use this tool to make an image. And that's the image. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what you're still doing that, right? Like that's how you're using the medium basically. Yeah. 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 And I've kind of developed like a specific approach where I, my surface is super absorbent. Like it's almost, it's kind of like the material that was used for fresco, Mm -hmm. like a super absorbent, um, like minerally ground. Are you putting dust in it or something? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so what I do is I have the panel on the floor and then I, I paint on it with water. Mm-hmm. 
and I have, to, I have to light it from the side so I can see what I'm doing, but it's like, you know, I'm kind of working half blind in a way. And um, the water soaks into the surface and it creates like a resist essentially. So it's less receptive to right. ink. And then the screen is just open. There's nothing exposed on it. It's just like wide open mesh. And then when I print on top of that, the places where there was water, the ink doesn't soak up as much. Right. So um, it's like, a, you know, I'm painting on the surface, but then it's just revealed through the printing. Yeah. It's almost like if you had watercolor and you dipped water, like just water on certain parts of the paper, and then you like pulled a, exactly. a color yep. or did a wide brush over it. It just reacts differently in different yep. places. So yeah, there's a lot a of chance way. involved. There is a lot of chance and there is a lot of um, like decision-making in the moment. So, you know, I'll pull the squeegee and that to me is like kind of a magical moment because it goes from this surface that's totally white with just water that's like kind of invisible. And then it's almost like a snapshot. You know, I pull the squeegee squeegees are really big so it's like a ton of information kind of just gets generated all at once and right. then when i lift the screen you know it's almost like seeing a you know like a polaroid well it's faster than that but you know like suddenly there's an image yeah. where there wasn't one before just gets revealed and it's revealed and it's fast and you know uh it's kind of messy and then i have a little bit of time to decide if i'm gonna keep working on it or if i'm gonna let it dry or if i'm gonna wipe it away entirely like i do have a brief period where i can kind of erase so that whole process has like really become a lot more clear to me this year i don't know if it was like just having more time in the studio but i've realized that like the way that i work is that there's lots of like kind of prep time where i'm kind of getting into the mental space of like the creative zone and then there's like sort of a like a brief fast like you know there's like a lot of activity that's like in a small period of time right um and then i kind of put it away and you know wait until the next step um and i used to not really understand that part of my process like i used to try to work it too long you know i used to try to keep going but I've gotten a lot more like um, tuned into when to start and when to stop. Yeah. Now, so that kind of um, process fascinates me because I feel like you really have to control. It's not a long amount of time probably, but you really have to control the time that you're doing that. So like yes. the, the closest I get to that is if I'm doing some sort of gradient where I have to keep wetting it and I can't right. let it dry. And like, it's very much, I say to myself, okay, here's my colors. I get them ready. I shut off yeah. my phone. I turn everything off. I've got to have a window. It's like all this preparation for a short amount of time. It's like the flip yeah, of everything else. You know what I mean? So do you have to do that? Do you have to, okay, today, studio, this time, I'm going to be doing this. And you have to map it all out and shut off the world while you're working on it? Um, I, do, I do have to shut everything off, but except for music. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it, like I have to have the the conditions have to feel really right, you know, like I have to um I just have to be in the right mental space 
you know, really that's the hardest thing is like, I can't force that mental space. So that's the part that's like unpredictable. Like, when am I going to feel like it's time to paint? Um, and I think the pandemic allowed me to access that time, that chunk of time, like when it was appearing a little bit easier because things were so, you know, we we're so tied to our houses and yeah. um, I got in there like at the moments that felt like the right moments a lot more than previously. But right. like really when it comes down to that moment, it's like I do all this, you know, I've got my inks already. I, I generally tend to prepare the whole screen. Like I've got the gradient developed on the screen and the screen is flooded and it's in the upright position and the panels on the ground. And it's like, I know that there's going to be a chunk of time that could be as brief as like 10 minutes. It could be as long as an hour. And I just need to know that that period of time is like ready for um, like the creative moment. So, you know, I'll, I'll like choose the music very specifically, you know, I'll make sure that like uh, the phone is off, like you're yeah. saying. And um, yeah. then it just locked. becomes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It sounds like the kind of work that you could, it would work really well, like in an upstate or in the rural setting to where you have a big space and it's very slow and quiet. Absolutely. I mean, I do dream about that, you know, someday having like the big, the big open studio. Yeah. Um, Cause now it's like, I gotta be really careful moving my screens around and you know, the squeegees, like there's ink flying everywhere and all my finished pieces are, <laughs> you know, on the wall behind, you know, plastic. Um, so I definitely feel like slightly constrained. Um, but now it's do, working. You do you have to, like, let's uh, it's hypothetical. Imagine you had a studio out in, you know, like upstate New York or somewhere far to where it's cheap. And you just have this big rectangle with like yeah. windows and like a big open space with a sink or something. Could you hypothetically work, like go to this place and like work for a few days and then take off a couple weeks and then go back yeah. and work? Can you work that yeah. way? Yes, I can. Yeah. I mean, I can't with the pieces. There's a period of like a couple weeks where they're still workable. Yeah. It does seem as though after a certain amount of time they cure and they can't be reworked, but I do have like a fairly big window. So like right now, I have some pieces in my studio that I haven't touched in a couple of weeks. And I'm like, I got to get back in there soon. Yeah. Um, but it's not like, it's not a super production schedule kind of right. deal. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think I do well with like concentrated periods of time. Like you were just describing going somewhere, having a dedicated, um, you know, focused time that actually works really well for me. Yeah. Well, you've done residencies, right? I would imagine that can do a similar thing. Yeah. And you know, a lot of them, <laughs> I, I love doing residencies. I can't really say that I often make really good work at residencies. Like a lot of, I, I don't know what it is. I just feel like there haven't been many where I had the like sweet spot of like, you know, tons of production. I had one yeah. that where I achieved that, but a lot of them, it's like, if the, if the studio's particular vibe isn't quite right, that can really throw me off. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. sounds kind I of like imagine. or whatever, but like, you know, some studios feel really good and other studios, you know, don't. And so that's, that's always a key thing. I always get there and I'm like, Oh, is the studio going to have like the right, 
<laughs> the right vibe. Right. Um, but then I did do like a self-directed residency a couple of years ago that was awesome. And yeah. I think it was almost because it was like not so formalized that I was able to actually really, you know, do your thing. Do my thing. And yeah. that was really fun. Like I sublet my apartment here in New York to someone. And then um, I found a, um, uh, an Airbnb in um, like rural Normandy in France. And it was wow. like cheaper than my, what my apartment in New York <laughs> is nice. per month. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, oh, kind of like a, it kind of evens out, you know, I can just buy a plane ticket and get myself over there. And um, the Airbnb had an art studio. Wow. It was, yeah, it was That's really a great situation. And they don't mind you using it. No, when she found out that I was an artist, she was like so excited and she was like, please use my studio, you know? That's so if amazing. anyone, I, mean, I would recommend that as like a way to <laughs> get out somewhere and do the something. Airbnb like residency. <laughs> Airbnb residency. Just um, put it on the CV as like Airbnb residency, you know, <laughs> like you did it. Totally. Totally. It's really but smart that one, though. I mean, if you could find that, I mean, it's great. You can find it. And Airbnb, it has all these like ways to search, you know, you can add, it doesn't have art studio, unfortunately, as something you can check off as a box, but they have lots of ones that say like, I don't know, there's kind of like alternative, you know, spaces um, that you can search within. And I think that's how I found that one. But it was awesome. And I just, it was near, it was near Monet's home and studio. Oh, so wow. you could all like get on a bike and, you know, go down to his village. And so, you know, that that's was cool. also cool. Um, but when I did that residency, I just, I brought one tiny screen, one tiny squeegee, and I brought one color of ink. And I was like, I'm only going to focus on developing imagery. So I worked really small, but I left it with like, you know, seven or eight, like distinct finished pieces. And even though they weren't big and they weren't something that I was going to show, they really, really felt like a, like a study for like the next phase. Yeah. That's great. Great idea too. So yeah, what what yeah. uh what are we talking here as far as music in the studio? Is it diverse or is it is it's pretty it fitting diverse, the mood? I like to think. Um, <laughs> um yeah, I mean I tend to I tend to have like you know one or two artists who I like really will listen to a lot during the run of a certain body of work. And a lot of times it ends up kind of being focused around a show. I don't know if you think that way. Like when I'm I preparing do, for a show. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like I'll have a certain playlist that kind of like relates to some of the works, right? You know, in, in that show. But like this time around, when I was getting ready for the work that's currently up at the show at Massey Klein, um, I got. Let's see. I started out. I got really into Alice Coltrane for a little while at the beginning of this body of work, which um, seemed to make sense, kind of visually. Um, in the sense of like a lot of, I really related in a lot of that work to some of the, the kind of like, not, not droning, but some of the sort of like repetitive, like kind of monotonous um, songs that, you know, they seem to kind of impart like a, like a fluidity. And, you know, I think a lot about gradients and color moving yeah. through a spectrum, kind of the way that you know, notes can like shift and, and 
bend. Yeah. And and her work really resonated um, at the beginning of that. Um, and let's see. It's I also got really for, those Alice Coltrane records are good for long, kind of like atmospheric, longer, atmospheric. like less pointed. Yeah. And just yep. filling the space with, I mean, the harp does something that I don't know, no other instrument does, you know? Yeah, the harp, that's a really good point. Uh, like the way that, like when I think of the harp, it makes me think of like a color spectrum. Yeah. Like things moving, the way that you move through that instrument feels like gradients of color that are like, you know, chipping along, like moving from one thing to the next. So yeah, maybe that's, maybe that was specifically what it was. Um, also during the run of that show, I got really into some of like the newer Thurston Moore albums. Oh, I haven't listened to it at all. Is it good? Um, there's one called Spirit Council from a couple of years ago that I listened to like endlessly during the making of this um, this show. And a lot of those songs were really long, you know, or like 15 minute long. Um, they're really epic. And, and that kind of, that seemed fitting. Are they, um, are they droney or songy? They're droney. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how he can, he jumps between those things still. Like, he, oh, yeah. He's, still, he's like incredible, like, you know, kind of perfect, like pop songs, but then uh, also has these like epic, um, kind of symphonic pieces. Yeah. You can flip the switch. So, yeah. So I listened to, to him a lot. I also got really into the staple singers. Um, <laughs> didn't yeah, see that coming. Funny diversion. I list, I watched that Ken Burns music documentary. Yeah, that's uh, amazing, right? And yeah. and that threw me for this weird loop where suddenly I wanted to listen to a bunch of like um, music that was a lot more like succinct pop songs in addition right. to like, you know, like Alice Coltrane. And then some of the staple singers were kind of like in the middle of that where they they had that folk they had those ties, loose, very loose ties, not that they were country music, but like the folk side of that. And a lot of those songs with them, you know, are, are long and kind of like call and response and, you know, leaning towards the spiritual side that Alice Coltrane might as well. Yeah. It's funny how when you bring God into the mix with music, it's just like, they're like, yeah, this doesn't have to fit on like a normal record. <laughs> you could just, we could just do this for... An hour that is or so two. true. Yeah. <laughs> That's a you know, really but good like like the chant stuff, like you know, think the chanting of yeah. Um, yeah. that. I mean, that stuff just goes for. I guess the idea is that the meditative state becomes somewhat godlike. Maybe in the, I would think the in a contemporary sense of like filtering out the noise of the world and just being more kind of at one with existence. Yeah. If you have something that's yeah. long and droney and takes you out sure. of that. Yeah, people yeah. are always trying to escape to that, you know. I think art does that right. a little bit too, you know. Yeah. You know, everything you said, you know, like th those are all really relevant things to me right now. And a lot of the ways that I think about that are like it's kind of like when I think when you're dealing with chance or intuition like it's a nice opportunity to let go of the ego. Yeah. Uh it's no longer about you and your intentions so much and it's you know, you're kind of at the whims of circumstance and it's more about just like the way that you respond. And it's almost just like a record of choices rather than necessarily like a, um, 
you know, an illustration of something. And, right. and, you know, I think music, like, I'm just always amazed by the, the live aspect of performance and, you know, how musicians do that all the time. Like when they're in that moment of um, performing, like, you know, they're in it in a way that I want to be as an artist. Yeah, for sure. And it is so, I don't want to say impossible, but it's so hard to get there through art. Right. Just being honest, or at right. least I haven't found, I mean, I'm not, you know, I guess if you're yeah. like John Cage, you know, you might've been getting closer to it, but you know, there were moments right. when I was playing music and on stage and it's usually in parts of songs that go longer or when you're jamming yeah. or like trying to write or something that you have this sort of spiritual, almost kind of like, you know, mm -hmm. I think that's why people take drugs sometimes like, you know, hallucinogenics or something to try to escape and like get into this, you know, like another plane of existence. Yeah. yeah. Another state like meditation. People do that too, you know, but I, it's just, but with music, I've never, art has never done anything like that. And right, I love art. Right. I mean, I dedicate my whole life to art, but you know, those moments where you're like really in the pocket or it's like kind of like jamming out and, and things are yeah. happening. It's, it's, it's otherworldly. It's really amazing. And then if you yeah. ever do that with, with the synthesis of the crowd involved when you're playing music live, it's like right. unbelievable. That, yeah, yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, I've maybe, you know, experienced it on the, on the crowd side of it, you know, where you can feel like that energy yeah. in the room. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, as close as I'm able to, to get to the sense of a feeling like I'm almost performing when I'm making the paintings, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to have someone witnessing that. Um, like that just seems like it must be incredible. Um, but I, yeah, I think about these things all the time, like at the, how music, you know, the way that people are able to relate to it, um, you know, so easily, everyone has some relationship to music and that's, yeah. it's not really the case with visual art. Um, and I think about that a lot, you know, I kind of wonder why that is, but. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's, not, it's, it's so direct, you know, it like moves yeah. you in a way. The, the beauty of yeah. art is that it is this sort of association with, you know, just like the word, the written word, it's, it, you know, it's, it's the sort of relationship between what isn't immediately experienced. It's like memory uh -huh. in a way, but music uh -huh. is so in the moment, you know, it's yep. just going into your ear hole and like shaking your body in a way. So it's visceral. Yeah. 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 But it is also like, you know, it's invisible and, you know, yeah. intangible. So it, it's almost, a little bit easier to accept like a painting you kind of have to deal with it you gotta right. look at it put some energy into it and music can just be around you and affecting you and you don't have to do anything <laughs> yeah it's the beauty and it's funny because i feel like the only reason people really do end up getting affected by it is when they look at the band or the group or the musician they'll make uh -huh. a judgment about the person or the look of the person or you know their style yeah. but the music mm -hmm. itself is unencumbered because it's just sound you know yeah yeah it's kind of an interesting dynamic i guess i mm -hmm. constantly ad nauseum talking about the relationship between the two so it's not like it's something <laughs> something new yeah, no. no i think it's um 
it's one of the reasons why I really like your podcast is that, you know, hearing all these different approaches to it, you know, it just makes you realize how each person's individual influences, um, you know, they can vary so much and, but they all work in, they all work their way in. And yeah, art is really interesting. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely just feel like in the studio, like I, I am totally driven by whatever like musical influence I have at the moment. And it's not necessarily that the work is going to visually reflect that. It's more just that energy that I was talking about that I feel like I need to access in order to make the thing. And so I can, if I'm like really excited about listening to like country music, you know, <laughs> that's all I need. Like, I just need yeah, yeah. something I'm interested in right. to get me excited to make the paintings. Um, so I do, I like to have new things that pop in that kind of shake up my idea of what I'm, what I like to listen to. And, yeah. you know, that, that energy I think is really super important. Um, and I, I can't think of anything besides music that does that so right. well. Yeah. Well, and I think also too, people who work with abstract media and there's a process based to it and there's some chance element to it, it kind of, I think it's, it's symbiotic with sound and music you know what i mean because so much yep. of music can't be pegged down besides lyrics which right. but still that's a po there's a poetry to lyrics they're usually not telling the story a to b like i went to the store today but you know it's, it's just yeah. some there's some air to breathe there and i think work like yours you know there's an opening there that i think the two can mingle you know then again when i look at images i think of music that it sounds like i can't not do that so you know when you look at an abstract piece maybe it comes out a little more quickly or it's you know it's a yeah. more interesting association than if you you know there's certain let's say figurative painters that are showing now that you could think like oh that reminds me of like a, a stone song or something you know it's or a blues song yeah. but but to artists who are working abstractly you can really go different places with like thinking about the relationship to sound. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember when I started working on this project, um, you know, the works were really small when I was figuring out the technique, but um, at that point I, I got super into like shoegazer bands from, you know, like 20 years ago or something. Oh yeah. That's, I was in one of those. <laughs> bands. Oh, oh really? Okay. Well, I was thinking a lot about like kind of that fuzzy guitar sound that was so prevalent. Yeah. in in a lot of that music and you know again like we were talking about the harp before like kind of those fuzzy edges of things um again like began to relate back to color for me right. and things kind of shifting between two places and you know when you're not quite sure what note you're hearing you know kind of like how you're not quite sure what color you might be seeing um I remember those two things really feeling like they came together and then that kind of set me on, you know, the path that I'm currently on. But I was like, this is funny that this kind of like specific genre of music from decades ago is like suddenly playing a role in my life again. <laughs> right. Yeah. When things come back and connect. What was your band? Oh, what was your shoe game? <laughs> talk about that. that was the band I was in in high school, but a lot of the guys okay. who were in that band, well, not a lot, but, the guys who were in that band went to Chicago and formed bands. So my friend who was in Joan of Arc 
was in the same oh. band as mine in high school. Oh. And then, yeah, yes, yeah, so there were, you know, those guys I went to Chicago and played music. That's right. That's right. I remember seeing Joan of Arc at the, um, at the Middle East. Oh, really? In uh, Boston? Nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I remember, yeah, hanging out with them and um, then later seeing them in Chicago. So that is funny that, uh, that there's that overlap. Yeah, that seems like another another lifetime in some ways i know really i mean i think it would have anyways maybe we're getting to that age to where that totally. feels like a, but i think specifically with being locked in your house for a year that kind of creates <laughs> another schism to where yeah, yeah. i think even young kids are going to have like the pre and post you know what i mean like oh remember remember school yeah, <laughs> yeah I, think, I think it's amplifying everything feeling longer longer ago in yeah, a sense for sure all right. Well, it's time for you to tell everyone about the show and where they can find your work and where, what, all the things you're doing and okay. that stuff. Um, great. Well, yes, I have a show up at um, Massey Klein Gallery on the Lower East Side of New York. Um, it's up until June 19th, and um, they are they are open these days, so you don't have to make an appointment. Or anything open, like open. That. You just open go up. in, look at art go in walk in the door during their hours and you can find me on instagram at kate mcquillan and um and you have a website i checked and i have out. a website mcquillan.com and i even saw the mailing list if you want to take it away nice did you html you wanna... that website <laughs> <laughs> did you a her f all those links wordpress <laughs> although i came across a website recently that was all made in ascii code do you know that no i don't it's like all the you know dots and lines but the whole website was just that it was like a hipster website and i was like oh that's cool <laughs> i clung on to my website for a long time was was html for like way longer than it needed to be <laughs> like it was really like Function. i feel like today it would have been cool yeah but i think i was hanging on to it right after like all the stuff was going like year and year and year after and then it Maybe was you just gotta bring It'll be like a vintage website. I know, right? Well, there is the Wayback Machine. You can check it out. You can see the splash page from 2004. Oh, that was a great year for my site. <laughs> oh, uh, but yeah, but this was really nice. Thank you so much for the for the chat. Yeah, it was, it was great to meet, and um, and I look forward to seeing you in person at some point. I think we're close here. I'm I'm we're close to getting like podcast and everything being in person, I think. So okay. um it feels good. Like it feels like things are things are much better. Much better. We're really close. We're really close. And it's gonna be exciting when everyone gets to to be in person again. So definitely. We need it. I think people need to go see things again. Oh yeah. It feels so good to see paintings in person. For sure. Sculptures not so much, just paintings. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding everyone settle down here comes the sculpture hate mail and then the video and then yeah experiments. everything all our people will be happy with this interview though <laughs> all the web designers they're, they're cool with it screen printers and web designers and and uh gig poster makers are going to be yep. pumped about this Good all right content. thanks so much it was great to talk Thank you. <laughs> 
Hey, do a favor. If you can, go to iTunes and leave a rating and review for the podcast. It really helps out. Many thanks for listening. Thanks to Lullatone for the music. Michael Lovett for the intro. Kate for talking. Make sure to check out her show at Massey Klein Gallery. And check out her work online and on Instagram. You can check out more images from the podcast at Sound of Vision Podcast on Instagram. And you can check out my work at Alfred Studio on Instagram and brianalfred.net on the internet. Many thanks to our sponsors, Golden Artist Colors, to the New York Studio School, check out their summer sessions, and Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. They make amazing coffee, which I'm drinking right now. Thanks to all the listeners. we got some more great episodes coming up, so make sure you stay tuned. Be well.